Now, you might be going, I thought we were supposed to start Romans chapter 4. Didn't we just end Romans chapter 3? Yes, we did just end Romans chapter 3, and we will, in fact, Jason will be starting Romans chapter 4 next week. Um, If you haven't had the privilege of hearing Jason preach, I encourage you to come. Um, He is a great preacher of the word, so we're excited to have him doing that. But I'm going to be jumping into Ephesians chapter 4 because I'm going to do part 2 of a three-part series. I started about a month and a half ago on the three D's of this church, delight, develop, and declare. I'm going to talk about develop today. Um, and Ephesians chapter four is going to be the passage I use to get into that and just kind of give you a picture of where we're coming from. Let me read that passage. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love, let me pray. Lord, we come before you recognizing our need for you to illumine our minds as we look into your word. Lord, we uh, need you. Um, we need your spirit to soften our hearts so that we would receive it with joy. We pray this morning as we examine this passage, as this passage examines us, that we as your people would love you more, would understand better what it is you've called us to. And Lord, um, that we would exalt you in all things. In Jesus name. Amen. Hey, Mitch, can you turn me down a little bit? What does it mean to be worthy? We we hear this word a lot in the culture. Something is worthy. I, I see that word in this text. Something is worthy. Um, I want to tell you a, kind of a brief story. When I used to teach high school, one of the things that I didn't do, and, and, and I, so you all know I'm not making a political statement here or lobbying you to do anything, but one of the things I didn't do was I didn't join the teachers' union. At the time, we actually had an option, and I didn't join, and I kept arguing with them that I felt like uh, merit pay was a good idea. Okay, Now, again, 
I felt like merit pay was a good idea and that we ought to be paid according to merit because I saw some teachers I didn't think ought to keep getting raises because they showed up the next year and, and all these sorts of arguments I would give. But here, here was the essential argument. When you talk about merit pay, and I'm, I'm, I'm not making an argument in favor of merit pay, so you know, but when you talk about merit pay, what you're saying is you believe that someone has earned something, that they are worth their wage, right? And, and what you assume on the other side is that if you give somebody a raise who hasn't earned it, they're not worth their wage. And that's, that's what that whole discussion is about. Do we determine whether or not to give someone raises based on whether they're worth their wage or not? And, and throughout the society... Um, in most of the private sector, you're paid based on whether or not your bosses or corporation assume that you are, you are in fact, worth your wage, right? Pastors, you know pastors are paid that way? In 1 Timothy 5.17, this word comes up. Um, and again, I'm not making the case for merit pay for pastors in case some of you don't think I merit it. Um, but it says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy Hear that word worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching that word worthy pops up again. And that word worthy means those who have earned it. Those who are meriting that double honor. The first honor is to be considered an elder or pastor. The second honor is pay. Okay. Let those who are worthy be considered, you know, or receive the double honor. Let them be paid. Those who you count in your congregation as such good teachers and leaders that you want them to leave their current employment and become full-time in the ministry, you say it's worth it to us to give up of our money to pay that person to study and teach and pray for. Does that make sense? They're, it's worth it to us. We've, they've earned it in some way. It's interesting that Paul uses this word in Ephesians 4. This idea of merit or earn. He says this, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I want to break that verse down for you a little bit, but it says this. He starts off with the I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And he's identifying himself. Paul's in prison at the time he writes this. And he's not just a prisoner in the sense that he's in prison, but he identifies, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I'm not just a prisoner of the Roman state. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I am here because I've been preaching the gospel and the Lord has brought me to this point and I am now a prisoner for him and I'm in chains and I urge you therefore, well, what's the therefore? And you, I I tell you guys this before, and lots of people do. You always ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore, right? Why is it there? What's he springing off of? Well, Paul has this interesting way of writing letters. He does it in Romans. He does it in Ephesians. He does it in Colossians, but he does this. He starts off with this whole doctrinal section, which is where we are in Romans. We're still in the doctrinal section. Romans, it's chapters 1 through 11. There's a whole section of doctrine. And he puts things primarily in the Greek tense of, of the indicative. What does that mean? When you say something's indicative of someone, they're saying that's a statement of reality. Does that make sense? Okay. As opposed to an imperative, which is a command. They ought to do this. Okay. In Romans 1 through 11, almost everything's a statement of reality. Here's what you are. Here's what God is saying about you. From Romans 12 on, therefore, do this. Now he's saying, here are commands. So he always grounds the commands in a statement of reality. In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul lays out, here is who you are in Christ. Here is the truth about you in Christ. 
And he starts off by saying, God loved you and chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Before you were even created, he loved you and chose you in Christ. He redeemed you by Christ's blood. While you were dead in your sins and an enemy of Christ, chapter 2, he made you alive together with Christ. For it's by grace you've been saved. See, God has done all this for you. This is true of you. You now belong to him. You're in Christ. You are saved. You are declared to be righteous. We call that justification. So Paul lays out all this truth. Here's what the gospel has done for you. Here's what the gospel says about you. Therefore, if this is true, therefore do this. Does that make sense? That's where he's getting to. He's getting this section of commands. Therefore, I urge you, I plead with you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's saying this, since I've saved you, since, excuse me, Paul's not saying I've saved you, but since Christ has saved you, since God has saved you, since these things are all true about you, now you need to walk in a manner that looks as if you're earning it. I don't mean by that you earn your salvation because look, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You're saved already. You're justified if you're in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ. It's true of you. Now, go out and live consistently with that. That's what he's saying. Go out and live consistently with it. In other words, is the way you operate in your marriage, the way you respond to your spouse, consistent with the gospel? Is it consistent with the idea that you've been saved by a God who loved you while you were still his enemy? A God who was on the throne, who left the rights and privileges of the ruler of the universe and humbled himself to become the servant and to die for people who were his enemies. Is your marriage consistent with that gospel? Is the way you deal with with other people in your life consistent with that gospel. Your friends, the person at work who's offended you, is the way you react to them, respond to them, consistent with that gospel? Is the way that you parent your children consistent with that gospel? Is the way that you care for your elderly parents consistent with the gospel? Is the way that you operate in the life of your community and you respond to your neighbors consistent with the gospel, because Paul says, I urge you, it should be. It should be. You've already received this incredible reward. And it was free. Now go out and live consistently with somebody who's received that. So he starts off saying, well, we, when we talk like that. When we say you've been justified in theological terms, that's justification you've been declared righteous by faith alone not by anything you do it's a free gift when we say now go out and walk worthy of it we're talking about sanctification living out what has already been declared to be true of you okay it's becoming what you're already said to be does that make sense we also can call that what we call it here to develop in christ to grow in Christ or develop in Christ. 
That is the second D. When we started planning this church, what we said was, we want to be a church that with Paul in Romans 1.5, believes we are about bringing the obedience of faith to all nations for the sake of his name. That's what we want to be about. How do we accomplish that? How do we bring the obedience of faith to all nations for the sake of his name? And we said, well, we're going to lay out three D's. This is our pathway to accomplishing that. The first one is we said we need to delight in Christ. That's where it starts. We delight in Christ. It's worship. It's the center of everything else we do. Not only is it the beginning of everything we do, that's the end of everything we do is to worship God. It's delight in him. The second thing we said was we want to develop in Christ, grow in our sanctification, become more like him, become the kind of church that honors him, that grows into the fullness of maturity in Christ. And then the third thing we want to do is declare him to the ends of the earth. Declare him to the ends of the earth. We want to make him known in all nations, not only through the proclamation of the word, but through living consistently with the gospel. Both things. And we want to do that in every people group who hasn't ever heard the gospel. That's what we want to do. Those were the three D's we laid out. I preached on the first one already, delight in Christ, and you're welcome to get a copy of that sermon. Today I'm taking on the task of develop in Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean to walk worthy? What does it mean to develop in Christ? What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to grow? It's all the same question. All the same question. Well, there are four commitments. I'll tell you, there are four commitments um, that Paul gives here in Ephesians so that we can walk worthy or we can develop in Christ. Four of them. Here's the first one. We must be committed to unity in Christ. First, we have to be committed to unity in Christ. Look at what he says here, starting with verse 2. To walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have to be committed, committed to unity in Christ. And what's interesting is that he gives five characteristics of that. He gives five characteristics of it. And here they are. First, Paul says that we have to do this with all humility, all humility. You know, I wish I had time, frankly, to cover every, I mean, to cover in depth the whole concept of humility. I think I could probably just do a whole preaching series just on the concept of humility because we are so prideful right? We are so filled with pride and our pride permeates every part of our life in ways that we so often don't even notice it. But I will tell you what causes disunity in a marriage, in friendships, in a church, in parent and children relationships faster than anything else is a lack of humility. Period. It's a lack of humility. Humility is the opposite of of pride or self-assertion. See, pride is to assert yourself. This is what I want. I'm going to demand what I believe I'm entitled to. Humility is the opposite of that. Humility is to place others above yourself. Place others above yourself. 
Jesus is obviously the best example of humility. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, which is just after Ephesians here. So you should be able to find it relatively quickly. Interestingly, Paul is laying out that he wants, he wants the Philippian church, church at Philippi, to also have unity. And he grounds that unity in the example of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, if you want to have unity in this church, it's got to start with humility. Here's what he says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing. How much do you do from rivalry or self-conceit? Nothing. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, in other words, in very nature, God did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was equal with God, but he did not have to hold on to the rights of being exalted as God. He gave that right up. He did not give up the powers of God or the nature of God. He was still in very nature God, but he gave up the right to be exalted as God. And he humbled himself. Goes on and says this. Do not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant or the nature of a servant. That's man being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Paul understands if we want to be have unity, we want to have unity in Christ. It has to start with humility. It has to start by following the example of our Messiah, our King. I sometimes am blown away by how Easily, I will run after insisting on my own rights. I will try to insist on them. How easily I'll do that in spite of the fact that my Lord, the Lord of the universe, didn't. And he had every right to. Look, your spouse offends you. You can say, you know, I have the right. I have the right for you to pay me restitution. I have the right for you to do something in response. Did we offend God? Did he have the right for us to do something in response to that? And yet he did what? Humbled himself became obedient to the point of death on our behalf. He didn't claim that right. He took the punishment due us on himself. How many of us do that with our spouses? You've treated me badly. And instead of retaliating, I'm going to take it upon myself and love you anyway. 
and I'm going to respond lovingly anyway. I'm not going to claim what I think is mine. We don't do that in the church either. So often see churches splitting, breaking up, people leaving. Because we think we have a right to something. And we will assert our rights. We will not humble ourselves. I deserved to be treated better than that. Is what we'll say. And we will be outraged that anybody would possibly ever treat us like that. You think Jesus deserved to be treated better than he was? Absolutely. Yet he willingly set his face for Jerusalem and went to his death on our behalf. That's humility. Demanding what you think you deserve is pride. Can't you see how this would be the root of unity or disunity right here? There it is. When people run around asserting what they deserve, it will cause disunity, won't it? When they humble themselves, unity will come. If we're ever going to have true growth or development in Christ, it will only come when we have unity. And that won't happen until we're humble. Hear that sovereign grace as a body. We will never reach full maturity in Christ unless we have full unity in the spirit, which will never happen unless we are humble. Never. You ever want a fulfilled Marriage that honors Christ, a mature marriage. You better humble yourselves or it will never happen. It won't. Until we're able to say that the good of the body, the good of the body, the good of the other is more important than me. Will not have unity. What happened? As long as we continue to assert our own rights and fight when everything isn't exactly as we would have it, we will not have unity. Won't happen. This, really this concept really leads to the next three characteristics. Look what he lists there. With all humility and gentleness. I think a lot of people misunderstand gentleness. Gentleness is the same word that Jesus use, uses for meekness. To be meek. The meek shall inherit the earth. The gentle is another way you could say that shall inherit the earth. People think because meek rhymes with weak that somehow they're the same concept. They're not. Meekness is power under control. You know, when we say somebody's gentle or meek, we don't mean weak. We mean their powers under control. I'll give you the greatest picture I can think of it. If you guys ever watch, and maybe you guys don't watch football, but I do. And I'm not going to lie about it. I it's an idol that God has to tear from my life. But, but I'll watch and you'll see these things where they send out these football players to, to, to hang out in the hospitals, right, with the little kids. And you'll see these big giant linemen acting kindly toward a little child. And people go, man, what a gentle giant he is. You guys ever heard that or seen that kind of thing? How gentle he is. Nobody's saying he's a wuss, right? He's a weakling. What are they saying? That guy doesn't crush that child like he could. He's gentle with them. 
That's what he's talking about here. We could crush people with our words and our actions if we wanted to. Can't we? But we're supposed to be gentle. Your tongue is a very, very powerful thing. The sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me is the biggest lie that I've ever heard. I wish at times, especially when I read the paper, that people would throw stones at me, right? Can you get a stick? It'd be easier, right? But we all know some kid punched you in the nose when you were a kid. You might remember, but it's like, oh, well, right afterwards, we had a sandwich and played basketball. Some kid gossiped about you and made you feel like a complete idiot and slandered you and talked poorly to you. And you still can feel the hurt if you think about that. When we use our tongues or authority or relationships to disrupt unity and attack or disparage or slander or gossip about others, we're not being gentle. Third, patience. Patience with all humility and gentleness with patience. What does patience assume? So I think sometimes we read patience. What does that assume? It assumes someone is doing something that bothers you. Doesn't it? It assumes that. It assumes someone has not yet arrived and you're getting tired of waiting for them to arrive. Is that right? Parents with your children. Ever get tired of waiting for them to finally get where you want them to get? Right? Because we get impatient. I remember as a youth pastor having to exhort parents actually to be patient. Um, what would happen is this. Generally, their teenager in some way would not be as mature as they hoped they would be at this age. And uh, so they would grow very impatient. And I would try to encourage them to be patient. Let maturity take place. See, when, when we become impatient is when we say this, I've got this problem. You haven't developed enough in this pro, in this area yet. And so now I'm done with you. I'm no longer going to be patient with you. Of course, we want everyone to be patient with us, right? But we don't often want to extend patience to others. The fact is that we mature over time. Sovereign Grace Church will not suddenly arrive, right? One one day we won't wake up, come here on Sunday morning, and poof, we've got land and a building and all the things you guys would like to have. It's not going to happen, right? Unless some of you grow so impatient that you fork out the cash for that to happen, (laughs) it isn't going to happen, right? It's going to take time to mature and grow. It's true of a church. It's true of individuals, isn't it? takes time our music program will mature over time the preaching will mature over time the children's ministry and nursery will mature over time the way you interact in marriage will mature over time i when i do marital counseling one of the things i try to encourage couples about all the time is be patient be patient because what's going to happen is you're going to start to make some progress and then One of you 
or both of you most likely are going to do something stupid. The same stupid thing that you're in here about again. Right? And you're going to say, I'm done. They did it again. And you neglect to pay attention to the progress that was made. Instead, you focus on what? That one thing you wish they would stop doing. They may have done it every day of the week for your whole marriage. And suddenly they repented. And now they only do it once a week. And you're going, hey, you know what? That's still not good enough. Right? Well, talk to anybody who's been married a long time. The fact of the matter is those things that irritate you will probably remain until you're both dead. (laughs) Right? You may improve in them, but they will not completely go away. Your spouse will not become Jesus. Okay? Now, most people would like to be married to Jesus because he's perfect, but that isn't your spouse. You have to be patient with growth. Have to be. We have to be that way in the church. Sometimes I think we treat the church like it's a girlfriend, right? Sorry to say that, but here's our girlfriend. She's irritating me. I'm getting tired of the fact that she hasn't done this. And so get lost. I'm out of here. Rather than like the church is our wife. We're married to her and God hates divorce. We dispense with the church, with other believers way too easily. We dispense with marriage in our culture, frankly, now way too easily. As Christians, we are not ever supposed to dispense with our relationships with other Christians unless they are in unrepentant sin, have been taken through the process of church discipline and still refuse to be restored. Until that happens, you don't dispense with your Christian relationships. You don't. You're in Christ. To do so would be a sin. I don't care what kind of rights you think you have to assert. We need to exercise patience towards individuals. No one's arrived. We're all in the process of sanctification. We're all growing. We can't say, I can't believe so-and-so did that again. When is my wife slash husband ever going to learn? When is our pastor ever going to get it just right? Guess what? I never will. Do you want to know something? You're going to have to be patient with me and every other pastor, whoever is in this church, because we, me now and future guys, we will disappoint you more than once because we're humans. And you're going to disappoint one another. Right? We have to be patient. The real question um, is not are we going to disappoint each other? Yes, we know that. It's not are we going to sin against each other? It's not are we going to do things to each other we should not do? We know that. The real question is are we going to be humble and patient and gentle with each other when we do? And this really leads to the, la- to the um, fourth characteristic, I'm sorry. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing, look what he says there. Bearing with one another in love. 
This means that our love has to overcome some obstacle that someone else has put in front of it. In other words, the assumption of Paul here is that we've been hurt or offended by another. That's what's assumed here. When you bear with someone another, one another in love, you've been hurt or offended by someone else. Yet you bear with them in love. We don't throw people out or walk away from the church. By the church, I mean the relationships, not the building. You understand that, right? We don't do that because someone's hurt us. We leave a church because the doctrine or teaching is unsound. Okay? Unbiblical. We leave a church because there's unrepentant sin in the leadership that's been confronted and not dealt with. We leave a church because of a positive reason, like God has called us to Guinea-Bissau where Dan is going or to East Bakersfield to plant another church. We leave churches for that reason. We don't leave churches because someone's hurt us. You know what we do when someone's hurt us that's in the body? We bear with them in love. That's what we do. When we walk another way from one another because we're hurt and only love each other when things are going well, we are no different from the world, are we? Look, even the pagans love people that are good to them. Who doesn't? What's supposed to be characteristically different about Christianity is what is characteristically different about our Lord from the people, which is God loves those whom are his enemies. God loves those who have offended him. That's what's supposed to make us look different. We don't just love those who love us. We love those who even hurt us. Do you know what the world thinks when they see that kind of love? Down deep in their soul. I'm not saying they're they're not sinful. They are. But down deep in their soul, God has created them for that kind of community. And they see it and they long for it. But unfortunately... They're not seeing too much of it, are they? Because we're so often not walking worthy of the gospel. Fifth, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Look, everything else feeds into this. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You are eager to look for unity not disunity. You are going after it. You're pursuing it. This is what you desire in the body is unity and peace. And you're pursuing it. But Paul doesn't stop with these commands for the church. You know what he does? What I love about Paul's letters is he goes to these commands and then he returns right back to the doctrinal statement of truth. Okay. Here's what you should do. Walk worthy of the gospel. Here's how you do it. Now I want to tell you something about I'm going to tell you the truth again. I'm going to get out of the command mode and get back into the truth mode. Here you go. There is, verse 4, one body and one spirit. In other words, he's saying you ought to walk in unity because these things are true. One body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He says one 
seven times he uses that word one. You know the word the number seven represents in the Bible? It's the number of what? Completeness or perfection. He says it seven times. He's being emphatic here. Understand the nature of the body of Christ. You are one. Act like it. He also goes in order from spirit, son, and father. See that? One spirit, he says first. And then he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, speaking of Jesus, one faith, one baptism. And then he says, and one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, usually when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here, Paul goes in the opposite direction. What Paul is saying is the Spirit has brought you into this relationship. He is the one who's effectually worked in you to call you to change your heart so that you love God. And he is doing what? Applying the work of Jesus to you. And who sent Jesus out to do this work but the Father? He's going over story. He's grounding all of this in the Trinity, in the Godhead. I wish I had time um, really to camp here, but I want to read the statement from James Montgomery Boyce, what he says, whatever else you may say about the church, whatever else you may say about the church, the church is God's church. It is composed of God's people. It is the result of God's work and exists for God's glory. So the church is. Sovereign grace is God's church, not ours. And we must stand shoulder to shoulder and humbly, gently, patiently, and lovingly allow the spirit of God to work through us to accomplish his purpose. But not only must we be committed to unity in Christ to develop, I'm going to get to our second one, second point, second commitment. We must be committed. I'll move through the other ones faster. Don't worry. We must be committed to diversity in gifts. So unity in Christ and diversity in gifts to develop in Christ. We have to be committed to that. Look at verse seven, verse seven. He says, unity, 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 right? One, 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 one. But verse seven, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I want to I stop there. <clears throat> Many people often mistake unity for uniformity. And that's a mistake. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. Just because we have unity does not mean that we are all the same. That we all have the same gift. We all have the same personalities. We all have the same passions, right? That would be uniformity. That's not what we want. What we want is a unity of people with different gifts, different personalities, different passions that come together of the same mind of the same spirit to proclaim the gospel of God's son to the ends of the earth. So we have to be committed to diversity in gifts. We have to be committed to diversity in gifts because Jesus gives out different gifts to different people. 
If I had time to go into 1 Corinthians 12, I could show you that again, or Romans chapter 12. Both of those are places you could look to see that God gives different gifts to different people. He always does. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to make any of these gifts into sacred cows. Okay? I think a mistake is often that we say, well, we're all different and that's good. And then we make that into a sacred cow. So cow, So I want to give this kind of qualification. I think it radically misses the point. That's what I'm saying. Radically misses the point. When we're in a place to serve others, for us to respond, well, that's not my gift. I'm not really passionate about that. That doesn't really fit my personality. The point in diversity is that we should celebrate and employ our various gifts for the benefit of the body. When we will not serve outside of our gifting, although there's a legitimate need, what we are really communicating is that we only do what we really like, which translates to I serve for my own benefit and not for the benefit of others. And that is where we miss the point. God has given us all different gifts for the benefit of the whole body. And that's what I want to focus on. Paul first says that grace was given to each one of us. When God gives you the grace for salvation, he also gives you the grace of a spiritual gift that empowers you to do what he calls you to do. Those things come together. Paul understands that when God saves you, he fills you with his spirit. He indwells you the spirit and he gifts you for service, the service that he's uniquely chosen you for. Look at verse 10 of chapter two of Ephesians, verse 10 and eight and nine. He says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you hear that beforehand before you were ever saved? God prepared good works for you to do. And he saved you to do them. And he empowers you by his spirit to do them. Everyone who believes empowered by the spirit of God to do what God has called them to for the sake of building up the body. Everyone. However, we're all different, differently gifted. And we're also given different measures of grace in regard to our gifts. If you want evidence of that, okay, I preach. There are many preachers that you can go and hear that are better than me at preaching. They have a different measure of grace in that gift. You guys understand that? I'm never probably going to be Martin Luther, right? who brought about the Protestant Reformation, forever changed Western history, and frankly, the rest of the world. I'm never going to be him, I bet. I don't know that, but I'm pretty sure. Okay? He has a different amount of grace given him for what God called him to do. And we should not despise diversity, but love it and rejoice in it. For it comes from Christ. Paul says it's a gift from the Lord that affirms his rule, authority, and power in the church. Look what he says here. Why does he quote Psalm 68, which is such a strange thing for him to do all of a sudden. It kind of throws people off generally. 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. What's this talking about? Psalm 68 is a psalm about how Yahweh took the people of Israel and conquered their foes. And he ascended the hill and basically did what? Sat down and gave out gifts to his people as the king. And so what this is saying about Jesus as Jesus descended to earth. God became man, walked among us, went to the cross, conquered sin and death. Rising from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the father and was declared to be Lord. And then he gave gifts to men. See what they're picturing there? And he gave these gifts. And he gave gifts to me and to you. We shouldn't despise the gifts because they're God-given for his purpose. Three, we must be committed to training in the word. We must be committed to training in the word of God or in the Bible. Okay, it's the third commitment. Must be committed to training in the word. Look what he says here in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When Paul lists the gifts in this passage, interestingly, this is the one passage where he only lists gifts of teaching. In that, if you go to First um, Corinthians 12, he lists various other sorts of gifts, generally gifts of service. Most gifts fall into two categories. They fall either into the category of teaching or word gifts, or they fall into the category of service gifts like leadership, service, you know, hospitality. What, take your pick. Giving financially. They fall into these two categories here. And only here in Romans 12, he lists both kinds of gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, he lists both kinds of gifts. Here, he only lists the teaching ones. He starts off with apostles and prophets. Why? Because according to Ephesians chapter 2, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. They provided the Bible, the teaching. Here it is. They gave us the inscribed teaching. That gift doesn't exist anymore. No one is writing the Bible currently. Okay? No one's adding books. Now, I've gotten letters from God before. Did you know that? People have actually sent me typed out letters signed by God. And, and it was sad because God's grammar was poor and God's... <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> no one is in the place of an apostle or prophet in that sense anymore. Those guys gave or were the foundation of the church, according to Ephesians chapter 2, and they gave us the word of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. It tells us what the apostles and prophets are for. Verse 20. Well, I'll start in verse 19. So then you were no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking to the Gentiles here. You've been made part of this one body. But you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. House of God being the church, built on the foundation 
of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. These apostles and prophets built the foundation of the church, which is the word of God. It's a teaching gift. Second, he goes on and he says this. He moves in from there to the evangelists. What do the evangelists do? The evangelists give you the first hearing of the word the apostles and prophets wrote down, don't they? They're the men who go out and preach the gospel and take the word to those who've never heard it before. They're the evangelists. That's a teaching gift. And then the last one he gives is the pastors and teachers. The grammar there, I think, is most arguably um, correct to be translated pastors dash teachers. This is one gift in which a person is given for the purpose of building up or equipping the saints. The apostles and prophets gave us the word. The evangelists preach it for the first time. And the pastors and teachers come in behind them and do what? Grow these new believers. Equip them. Does that make sense? They come in and do this work of discipleship. And they do it two ways. By pastoring or shepherding or caring for them. And by teaching them the word. And look what it says they teach for. Go on to the next part. Verse 12. All these teaching gifts are for the purpose of to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Interestingly, they are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Did you hear that? And we'll get to that in our fourth commitment. The elders, pastors of the church are given to the body to pray, teach and care for them so that they are equipped to do the work of the ministry. The pastor or teacher is given to help the congregation avoid what? To help them grow so they can avoid verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In other words, they teach the truth. Titus chapter 1 verse 9. The pastor, teacher, slash elder. Same thing. Same office. Do you know what they do? They hold fast to the word and they teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's their role. That's what they're given to do. That's why I teach expositionally through the word on Sundays. Why am I going through Romans? Why in the world are we a month, a year and two months in and we just finished chapter three of Romans? Because I believe that it's necessary that I take the time to properly teach you God's word so that you're equipped and mature. So that you're not tossed around by all the winds of doctrine that come through. And trust me, plenty of them do. That's my job. That's what God has given me for. If a pastor does anything less than that, he's missing the whole point of his calling. He's not called to be an entertainer, to be a funny guy, to tell great memorable stories. He's called to exposit the word as written down by the apostles and prophets so the people know it. That's what he's called to. 
That's why we dream of one day having a school where we train pastors and missionaries. We dream of that here at Sovereign Grace. It's part of our D, develop in Christ. We want to train people. That's why we have small groups where we ask you to do Bible studies in them, not just meet and have cake. Cake's nice, okay? But a lot of people eating cake go to hell, don't they? <laughs> I'm sorry to say that. Cake isn't going to save anybody. Okay? People knowing the word of God brings them to salvation and grows them in it. It's why... We have the class that Kevin Lewis teaches on Thursday night where we bring a seminary professor from Biola University up here to teach, to train people. We want to train people for the work of the ministry. Christ is the head of the church and he's given us his word by his spirit and it is sufficient for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that's what we do. However, I want to say this, while the teachers or pastors of the church are extremely important to the maturity of the church, God uses them to equip the members to help one another grow to full maturity. In other words, you will never grow to full maturity just by hearing me preach. It will not happen. You will never grow to full maturity even if we have a whole cadre of incredible Bible expositors. It will not happen. They are given for the purpose of equipping you to help each other grow to fullness in Christ, to maturity in Christ. That's their job. Their job is not to replace you. It's to equip you. I, I want us to avoid this. I want to get into our fourth commitment. It's the fourth commitment to, that's necessary to develop in Christ is that we must be committed to the fact that every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. We must be committed to that. We have to avoid the mentality that has existed out there for centuries now that we leave the ministry to the pros. Right? First of all, I'm not a pro at anything. Okay? I'm not a professional. I never intend to be a professional. I'm a pastor of a church. You guys don't pay me to be a professional. You pay me to preach, to study, to pray, to care for people. Not to build a career. I'm supposed to go out there prophetically telling the truth, confronting sin, teaching what the word says, even if it costs me, right? Not what professionals do. And no offense to those of you who are, who work hard to make sure that their career is built because you have to make compromises at times. Don't you, you don't pay your pastors to compromise with the truth. Do you? And that's all I'm given to do. Teach you. That's it. Teach you, pray for you, care for you so that you're equipped to minister to each other. Somehow this idea of the, the priests and the laity came into play in the church historically. And so people think we pay that guy. We come, we sit in our seats, we hear our sermon, we take our communion, we listen to our music, and then we go home. And that's our job. His job is to do that stuff. Our job is to come and sit and listen and 
write a check. He's the pro, we're the lady. He's the priest, we're the lady. No, I don't even like the word lay people, frankly. You're ministers, you're priests, according to the word of God. I'm here for the purpose of equipping you to do the ministry, not to do it for you. We're supposed to encourage one another to help one another grow. Look what it says here in verse 12. Pastors and teachers to equip the saints. That's not some group of guys that that you put in some kind of distorted, arty picture up on the wall in the church. Okay, the saints are believers. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who is to do the work of the ministry? The saints equipped by their pastors and teachers. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You want to reach mature manhood in Christ? We cannot do it if every member of the body is not employing their gifts. You guys hear that? Cannot. If I'm the only one employing my gift or if few others are employing their gift, we can grow some. We can grow some. But we will never grow to full maturity if we are not all employing the gifts that God has given us. Do you hear that? Full maturity in Christ cannot. I want you to hear this. And I don't want to understate it. Full maturity in Christ, becoming the church that God really wants us to be, cannot. It is impossible for it to happen if the entire body, if every member here does not become a minister to one another by employing their gifts. It's that important. It's so important that Christ designed it so it cannot grow to maturity without that. Can't. We can only go so far. God has given you all different gifts. I don't know, service or giving or administration. Some of you have the ability to make money and to give it. We won't reach maturity if you don't exercise your gift. Some of you have the ability to do administration I don't. Trust me, we won't reach maturity if you don't use your gifts. Some of you have the gifts of service. We won't reach maturity if you don't use them. Some of you have the gifts of leadership. Won't reach maturity if it doesn't happen. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Won't reach maturity if you don't use it. Shepherding. We can't do it without you. Look at what Ephesians 4.16 says. And I want to stress this. As we grow together, um, we do this by speaking the truth in love to one another. I want to say that straight up. Speaking the truth in love to one another. Not just speaking the truth to one another. Speaking the truth in love to one another. And it says here, From the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped equipped when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How does the body grow so that it builds itself up in love when every member is a minister? Does that make sense? That's how we grow. So that we build ourselves up in love when every member of the body is a minister. That's how it happens. When every part is not working together in unity, we can't grow into what Christ has for us. Can't do it. Growth takes time, so we must be patient. But we must also work hard to build ourselves up in love. 
work hard at it to build ourselves up in love. And what is the Christian life without growth as a body in love? Really? James Montgomery Boyce said the following. Here's, here's what it's like if we subtract love from the body. You ready? And I'm going to end with this. Subtract love from joy, and what do you have? You have the kind of hedonistic reveling found in the secular world. The pursuit of pleasure for its own sake. Joy is distorted. Take love from sanctification. The result is self-righteousness. Take love from truth. The result is bitter orthodoxy. Take love from mission and you have colonialism. Take love from unity and you have ecclesiastical tyranny. But instead of subtracting love, you express love for God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible, one another, and the world. What do you have? You have all the marks of the church because they naturally follow, right? Love for God leads to joy. Nothing is more joyful than knowing and loving him. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ leads to holiness. As he said, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. Love for the word of God leads to truth. If we love the Bible, we will read it and grow in a knowledge of what the word contains. Love for the word world, excuse me, the world leads to mission. Love for believers leads to unity. Sovereign grace, let us walk worthy of our calling by developing in Christ so that we we attain full maturity in Christ and so that we love God, his word, his church, and his world deeply. That's, that's the second thing in our pathway that we're about. That's what we ask you to pray for us, that we can be a church that develops in Christ that way. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you um, for your word and its truth. And I pray that you would help us to grow into full maturity in Christ. Help us to understand your word, Lord, um, so that we would not be tossed by every wave or wind of doctrine, Lord, but that we would be steadfast in the truth. Lord, help us to be people who love you and therefore delight in you. And help us to be people who love your word and therefore know the truth. And people who love your uh, church, Lord, and therefore have unity. And people who love your world and therefore engage in evangelism and missions. Lord, we need you. Um, Apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us to become the kind of church that Paul um, calls the church at Ephesus to be. Lord, a church that truly walks worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.